from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Francis Worthington. Francis is the author of Baha'i Basics, a guide to the beliefs, practices, and history of the Baha'i faith, and also the book Abraham, One God, Three Wives, Five Religions. I started the interview by asking Francis where she grew up. And what was it like growing up there? The interesting thing is that I've lived in several places because my father served in World War II and at the end of the war was stationed in Tacoma, Washington. So I was born in an army hospital there, but then the war was over. And so um, we moved back east to be near relatives in Massachusetts. But I've spent time in Belgium and in Kentucky and went to high school in Tennessee. So I had a pretty good look across the United States for different cities. So how many different places did you live growing up? Oh my gosh, I don't I don't know that I've really counted them, but I guess it would be about 7. But it was kind of fun. Right. Uh, you know, different schools, different accents. Um as I look back on it, I think it gave me a great deal of um courage in facing new situations because when you have to learn to adapt to new schools, then later on nothing else seems as difficult. And what was spiritual life like growing up? Well, my parents were actually members of the Baha'i faith before I was born. They had met at a Baha'i summer school. And so from the beginning, I um, learned about the Baha'i faith. My parents moved to Belgium when I was about six months old in order to be there and teach people about the Baha'i faith after World War II, because at that point there were no Baha'is in Belgium. Maybe there had been one or two visitors, but that was it. So they spent three years in Belgium when I was little. And during that time was when I learned to say bye, because I, that was when I learned how to talk. But then later, it was a matter of um, my father would conduct Sunday classes or Saturday classes or Wednesday classes, depending on the schedule of the children, uh, wherever we lived, to learn more about not just the Baha'i faith, but to learn about other religions, too, because part of being a Baha'i is learning about all the religions of God. How did your parents learn about the Baha'i faith? Well, it was interesting because they each learned about it separately. My mother actually learned about it from her mother because my grandmother became a Baha'i in 1918, or at least um, began going to Baha'i meetings at that point. She had been a member of a Unitarian church in Illinois, and the minister at that church decided that he really wanted to follow the Baha'i faith, and so he left the church. But he preached a sermon before he did about it, and had actually been teaching some Bible classes from a Baha'i point of view as well. So evidently my grandmother decided that she was convinced by those arguments, and that was when she began her association with the Baha'i faith. Mm. So then my mother learned about it from her, didn't really formally join the Baha'i faith until she moved to New York after high school to study cello and do some acting, and then ran into a, fe- a friend of her mother's and really began to study it in earnest. So then my father, separately, was living in Boston, and um, a family friend had become a member of the Baha'i faith, and he was fascinated by it. 
So even though his five brothers and sisters and his parents all thought it was pretty strange, he couldn't give it up. He finally became a Baha'i. And then, as I mentioned before, my mother and father met in about 1940 at a Baha'i summer school in um, Maine. Yeah, it's not the typical thing in the United States. I mean, more more people in the United States who are Baha'is right now really learned about it when they were in college or a little later and sort of joined at that point. So for me mm-hmm. to grow up in a Baha'i family uh, is fairly reun- fairly unusual, and especially to have had a grandmother who was um, a Baha'i in the United States, because, of course, the Baha'i faith was only introduced to the United States in the very late 1800s and early 1900s. So I figure that when my parents became Baha'is, there were about 4,000 Baha'is in the United States. And what were your interests growing up? Ah, my interests. Well, hmm, I love to read. That's mm-hmm. probably the biggest interest in my life. But I also really was fascinated by plants. Um, wherever we lived, I, was, I would always try to grow something, even though my parents laughed at me because they didn't like to garden at all. But it turns out I must have inherited that from their, their parents because on both sides there were big gardeners. So I was just fascinated by the plant world and spent a lot of time thinking about plants. I can name now that I know the names virtually all the plants that were in, in the yards where we lived when I was young. So that seems kind of strange, doesn't it, to think, oh, yes, I can remember that plant, and that's what it looked like, and now I know the name. But, uh, you know, I liked sports. I played basketball in junior high school and did ice skating when we lived in the north and horseback riding. And Really, luckily, had a well-rounded childhood, I think. And what did you do after high school? Well, after high school, um, I attended Duke University for four years, majored in psychology, and then got a master's in library science, and then in 1969 married a man that I had met on a blind date when I was in college at Duke. He didn't know much about the Baha'i faith at all. He, his roommate and my best friend were dating, and so they set up a date for us, and they said, well, we've got this interesting date for you, but she's a member of a kind of a strange religion. And he said, well, okay, I'll go out. <laughs> so that's how I met him. And what was his initial reaction to your religion? Well, you know, he was really entranced by it from the beginning because he grew up as a Presbyterian, and he said he could remember sitting in church listening to a sermon and saying to himself, well, what if the doors of the church opened? What if somebody came down the aisle and said, there's a new message. You need to put down your nets and follow me. And his big question was, how would I know if it was true? And if it was true, what would I do? So he really had been thinking himself about how one reacts to a new revelation from God and about what he himself would do if he heard about something new. So that was not by any means a typical reaction at that point in time. We were in college from 1964 to 1968. At that point in the United States, there were about 10,000 Baha'is. I was the only Baha'i on the Duke campus. It was not a time when people knew what it was at all. And yet here's this wonderful man who's like, oh, that's interesting. So Duke is in North Carolina, right? It is, in Durham, North Carolina. And you said what year was this, 64, 68? Yes. What was your relationship with what was going on with, with the civil rights movement during that time? Of course, being a Baha'i, I had grown up knowing all different colors of people from the time I was young. So we had actually even been threatened by the Ku Klux Klan once in Kentucky because 
people of, who were African came to our house, and I happen, my family's white, so obviously people noticed that there were different colors of people and didn't think that was a very good idea. Um, I went to hear Martin Luther King when he came to Duke to speak. Certainly it was interesting because the Baha'i community in Durham was already integrated and had been for a long time. So even though I was the only Baha'i at Duke, I was able to go to Baha'i worship services in Durham and just talk about what was going on with people who were black and people who were white. So how old were you in Kentucky when this happened to you? Ten. So my parents just received, they received a hate letter, uh-huh. basically, a threatening letter, which nothing happened that mm-hmm. in, the, in the end. Mm-hmm. But it was um, just a symptom of what was happening to people all over the country. And it never went any further than the... Than the it did not. We were very lucky. Um, certainly, I've here in Greenville, South Carolina, where we live now, the people who became Baha'is in the early 60s were threatened. Uh, meetings were shut down. Crosses were burned in the yards of Baha'is. People were fired from their jobs. So people had much more difficult time than we did. What did you do after college? What did I do? Well, let's see. I, okay, so I went to Duke, then I went for a year to Kent State University in Ohio and got a master's in library science, and then my husband was in medical school in Atlanta. Well, we weren't married yet. Sorry, we got married, and then I joined him. He was starting his uh, second year of medical school in Atlanta at Emory. So we spent time there until he graduated and then moved when he did an internship and residency, all that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. moved several different places, including Japan, because... Uh, my husband was drafted and then given a deferment during the Vietnam War, but still had to serve. So we lived in Japan for three years, in the, let's see, about 70, from about 75 to 78. Then moved back, he did a residency, and then we ended up moving to South Carolina just because friends of friends were here and wanted him to come down here. Mm-hmm. So here we are. Now, when did you find you were interested in writing? Let's see. It's funny. I've gone back and looked at some papers and things that I have from high school and college, and I realized that the way I write now is the way I wrote then. But because I'm sort of a straightforward writer, I'm not terribly good at fiction. In English classes, I never got spectacular grades. I mean, I made A's, but nobody said, oh, you should be a writer. <laughs> so, but the one thing that entranced me more than anything else was garden columns in local newspapers. And I always thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to do that? Well, when we moved to South Carolina in 1980, they were just beginning something called a Master Gardener program. And our children were just starting school, and I thought, well, I would love to volunteer as a gardener. Wouldn't that be exciting? So I took this Master Gardening course. We were the first class ever. And as we finished, because we were the first Master Gardeners in in South Carolina, the newspaper interviewed us. And as it turned out, the newspaper was losing its garden columnist right then, and looking for a new one. And the reporter who had interviewed me said, well, let me call up this woman and get her to turn in a sample column. Maybe she can write. And that's really how it happened. I had not thought of myself as a writer uh, until then. So I turned in two perspective columns, and they called me in and said, okay, you're hired. So there I was, suddenly a freelance writer. I didn't have to be at the newspaper. I could just write at home and then turn in the columns. And then pretty soon I had to start taking photos as well, so I guess that made me a photojournalist. And how long did you do that for? I did that for almost 20 years. Wrote for the newspaper, wrote for a couple magazines, and then published one book during that time, which was sort of a, uh, a guide to gardening in South Carolina, especially in the upper part of South Carolina where we live. And uh, when did you uh, write your first Baha'i book? 
Well, the first time I wrote a Baha'i book, I started working on a book of questions and answers in about 1999, I think, because all my life, having grown up as a Baha'i, my life has been full of questions. People asking, well, why this and why that? And I had sort of started noting questions down because I would have to go and look them up, and I thought, oh, I want to remember this. So I already had my own list in a filing cabinet of questions. And then I started thinking, well, I'd love to have a book of questions and answers to be able to give to somebody. So I actually experimented with some booklets, and then I just stapled things together and got people who were Baha'is and people who weren't Baha'is to read it and give me feedback. And then a small publisher here in Greenville published my first version of something called Baha'i Basics in about 2002 or three, somewhere in there. Then I didn't think too much more about it. But in the meantime, I was learning about Abraham because of questions that were being asked of me by members of the Interfaith Forum to which I belonged. And the more questions I got about Abraham, the more I started learning about him and somehow was invited to lecture about him. And then in 2005 at a Baha'i Winter School, a uh, professor of history who was there suggested that I write a book about Abraham. So I had this small book of, of questions and answers, and now I began what was really going to be my third book, which was about Abraham. And it took me about five years, even after that suggestion, to finish the book. I probably was collecting information on Abraham for about 10 years. So that's sort of the saga. But And, and then all of a sudden, the, publishing, the Baha'i Publishing Trust, which had then published the book on Abraham, One God, Three Wives, Five Religions, in 2011, decided that they would like to also put out a new edition of the smaller book I had done of questions and answers. So that's uh, a way too long explanation of how it all came about. No, that's fine. That's an interesting title, One God, Three Wives, Five Religions. Can you describe the significance of the title? Yes. It it, uh, took us quite a while to figure out the title, but what it came from was realizing as I answered questions about the Baha'i connection to Abraham for people who were in the Interfaith Forum, and particularly one rabbi who was interested in pinning down some information, was that most people thought that there were perhaps two Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Christianity. Some people in the late 1990s were beginning to acknowledge that there might be three, Islam being the third, but almost no one outside of the Baha'i Faith was talking about the fact that there were actually two more Abrahamic religions, that the founder of the Babi faith as well as the founder of the, Bab, of the Baha'i faith uh, were both descendants of Abraham. And I also found out as I answered questions that almost nobody remembered that Abraham actually had a third wife named Keturah. She's right there in chapter 25 of the book of Genesis, but she gets overlooked. So the title relates to all those discoveries I made in the course of answering questions and then beginning to write, because I realized that Although people, yes, get the idea of one God, um, then if I added three wives, five religions, instantly I would get questions like, oh, who's the third wife? Or, oh my goodness, what are the five religions? So for me, that was a winning title. I had tested quite a few other titles on people before I settled on this, but this was the one that drew questions from people, and I love questions. Maybe you could explain who the Bob was. Yes. That's the, the one of the questions, in fact, that most people ask. The because the Bab, um, that's spelled B A B. He was the founder of the Babi faith, and his name means the gate. 
And he was a very interesting figure in religious history because he had a dual mission. And he announced in 1844 that he was the bearer of a divine revelation from God. Um, He certainly introduced new laws, spiritual laws and new physical laws. But he also said that the second part of his revelation was to announce the coming of a second manifestation of God who would arrive almost immediately. So instead of just, as we look backwards and see just one manifestation of God at a time, one messenger coming, um, there were two messengers of God, both with divine revelations and yet occurring within a few years of each other. So many people like to explain the Bob as sort of analogous to John the Baptist, but um, he actually, the Bob was a little different in the fact that he wrote his own book in his own hands of the revelation that he had received and did found a religion called the Babi faith. So he had a very difficult life, um, a very short um, time period um, in which he was allowed to be alive and give his message because he announced his mission in 1844 and in 1850 he was martyred simply for daring to talk about a new message from God. It's a very tragic story. In fact, the life of the Bab has many parallels to the life of Christ. It does, doesn't it? Yes, they both willingly gave up their lives in order to demonstrate the strength of their beliefs, that there was a God, that they had received revelation from God, um, that they felt that their lives were worth sacrificing in order to help humanity, and that they believed in life after death, all these things through their own sacrifice. And they both had a very few number of years during which they could give their revelation before they were killed. So they do. They were both quite young. Um, The stories about their young lives when they were so precociously able to explain very difficult religious passages are the same. Fascinating details. And and then tell us a little bit about Baha'u'llah. Ah, well, and then... Baha'u'llah is fascinating because he first became a follower of the Bab, and then after the Bab had been martyred, Baha'u'llah was imprisoned for being a follower of this young religion, and while he was in prison, realized that he himself was the, revela- was the divine messenger whom the Bab had foretold. Um, he described this experience being chained in a dark dungeon, a horrible, filthy underground dungeon in Tehran, and having this spiritual vision of a maiden who came to him and to, who announced that he himself was the divine messenger of God. It's reminiscent of the Holy Spirit appearing in the form of a dove to Christ or the angel Gabriel calling out to Muhammad. These are wonderful spiritual metaphors for the overwhelming way in which these messengers of God realize their divine purpose. So he actually announced his revelation that he was the messenger of God foretold by the Bab. He announced this in 1863, and he had already been imprisoned. He was banished time and time again and finally spent the rest of his life as a prisoner in Israel. Of course, at that time it wasn't Israel, it was Palestine. But until his death in 1892, he was considered a prisoner of the Ottoman Empire, simply, again, for preaching a new gospel. It's amazing how frightened humans come become of a new idea about religion, isn't it? Yeah, in fact, the Bob's appearance or the Bob's declaration of his mission created such a tumult 
in Persian society, people were just either devoted followers or adamantly, violently against the prophet founder and, and the religion, the religionists themselves. Well, it is fascinating because we have a historical record of, of eyewitnesses to this persecution and what even reports in the London Times and the newspapers of the time about this terrible persecution of people who were becoming attracted to this new divine revelation from God. It's, uh, it's hard to imagine what an exciting, horrible, dreadful, awful, wonderful time it was. So do you have a favorite passage that you would like to share from One God, Three Wives, Five Religions? Well, yes. I, I thought about that. I know he had talked about it before the interview. and I've decided to read from chapter 18. And this is a transitional chapter, because the previous chapters have all talked about the life of Abraham, but then they have come to the end of his life, his burial, and now begins the transition to looking forward. So the chapter is titled, Hinting at the Future. And it's looking forward to what's going to happen as far as the five Abrahamic religions that will arise after Abraham has died. The overture to a musical, such as South Pacific or Phantom of the Opera, contains bits and pieces of songs that are destined to be sung during the full performance. If you are sitting in a dark auditorium, listening to an overture for the very first time in your life, the music will be both tantalizing and mysterious. It will hint at events to come. Yet from the overture alone, you will not be able to guess exactly what will happen. Only after the curtain rises and the actors have assumed their roles will the melodic snippets expand into songs and, one by one, reveal their full glory. By stretching the musical analogy a bit, we can apply it to Abraham. Within the bounds of this analogy, Abraham's life was a tantalizing overture, full of prophetic hints about various songs that would be sung in the millennia ahead. When the overture ended, when Abraham died, it seemed to be the end of everything. But it was merely an unnecessary pause. Soon the curtain would rise on the full performance, and the prophetic overtones of his life would develop into complete melodies. So that's the passage of transition from the death of Abraham to the next 4,000 years of religious history. So there's a concept in the Baha'i faith called progressive revelation. I was wondering if you could share your perspective on, on that concept. Well, my understanding would be that there is just one God, and logic would dictate then that all the religions of the world worship that same God, whether or not they realize it. It's as though we had different names for the sun, and I said, well, the sun is what makes my plants grow. But somebody on another part of the world said, no, no, that's not right. It is the, whatever the word they would use for sun would be, that makes my plants grow. And we would disagree about this very same thing that was making our plants grow because we called it different names. So my understanding is that there's really only one God, and that every so often God communicates with mankind, um, communicate being the best word that we have, I guess, to use, through divine revelators, that they are touched by the Holy Spirit in a way that enables them to give mankind new spiritual information that is suited to the age in which he comes. 
and also give laws, um, physical laws, marriage laws, divorce laws, things like that, that again are suited to a particular age and place. And so just as the laws that we um, attend to when we're in elementary school are different from the laws of the classroom of a high school, so the laws and spiritual information in each religion are a little different because these revelators have come at different times. They're teaching mankind in his childhood, in his adolescence, and now we would say that Baha'u'llah has come at the beginning of the maturity of mankind. So the message is the same, there's just one God, but some of the ways of expressing how we might best carry out this message are different because Baha'u'llah has brought a specific teaching, for instance, about the equality of women and men. This is something that you might um, see hinted at in previous religions, but it's never been a vital principle. So for me, I would say that mankind has now progressed to the, the point where a revelation from God can include this as a basic spiritual law. So progressive revelation does not mean that one revelation is better than another. It's simply like the new edition of a book. It has the most current information, and so it is wise of mankind to follow that new information. And so these religions, Judaism and Christianity and Islam and the, the Babi faith and the Baha'i faith, these are progressive revelations? That would be my understanding, that they've each been sent by God to a different time and place for specific purposes, to help educate mankind spiritually, to help guide him socially, um, and that they're all chapters in the same book of the religions of God. So they all had vital purposes, purpose, they all are worthy of respect, and they all have been absolutely essential to mankind's growth and development. Let's talk a little bit about the other book uh, that was published, Baha'i Basics, which is called yes. A Guide to the Beliefs, Practices, and History of the Baha'i Faith. So it seems to cover a number of topics. within. Well, it does. You're exactly right. Sort of everything from, well, let's see, um, who was Baha'u'llah and what was his message to other things like what is the Baha'i calendar or what happens when somebody dies, or what about high marriage laws? These are all questions I think that we have about any religion that we study, which is what about this and what about that? We all want to know real specific things. So these are very short questions and answers um, about different aspects of the Baha'i faith. And do you have one that you would like to share with us? I thought about reading about good and evil. (laughs) It's a topic that we're all fascinated by, isn't it? Sure. The whole idea of good and evil, the existence of Satan. And we know that in the Baha'i faith, um, Baha'u'llah has explained that Satan is not a, a separate physical being, but a very real description of mankind's pull toward using his own ego instead of his own spiritual nature to achieve things. And so I begin Chapter 4 on Good and Evil with a very short um, description. And I say here, a very simple description of the Baha'i understanding of good and evil is that good is like light and evil is like the darkness that appears in the absence of light. Just as we must exert physical effort to light a candle to banish the darkness, So we must exert spiritual effort to acquire good qualities that will illumine our souls and banish the shadows of evil. And then I go on a little bit later to talk about Satan himself, because 
that I think is something that we're always very fascinated by, um, the existence of Satan. So under the, under the questions about Satan and about evil, I say here on, let's see, page 29, one way to understand the Baha'i concept of Satan as the symbol of evil is to think about how love is symbolized by a winged cherub carrying a bow and arrow. The force of love is real and can be expressed through loving acts, even though it is not a physical entity. Indeed, we may say that we have been shot by the arrow of love, even though no cherub has flown in the window and no shaft has pierced our skin. In much the same way, we can speak of an evil act being inspired by the devil and can suffer from the effects of that act, even though it did not involve a tangible creature wielding a pitchfork. So those are just a couple Mm -hmm. of examples of questions and answers. So if people are interested in getting either of those books, where would one go to, to Well, to I think, yeah, don't we all use Amazon these days? I think we do. <laughs> <laughs> They're both available on Amazon. I see. Uh, and the Kindle version of Abraham is out. I'm not positive if the Kindle version of Behind Basics is actually out yet or not, but it will, if not quite this week, it will shortly be available. So they're easy to order online. Um, you can also order it through your favorite bookstore or in many cases, you can borrow uh, from the library. If your library doesn't own a copy of either of these books, they both fall into the category of books that libraries are interested in buying, especially the one on Abraham, because it was reviewed by a book, by a magazine called Library Journal, and got a very positive review. So that means that universities and public libraries have bought it all over the United States. So I'm pretty sure you can find a way to borrow that one for free. What do you think the next thing you're going to write? Going to be? I wish I knew. Let's see. I just wrote a book for our um, two-year-old grandson. <laughs> so I don't think that counts, though, because it's just about his name and how wonderful all the things that he does in his life are. So that's a very much a self-published little book. I'm not sure. I'm working, actually, on, even though fiction has not been my strong point, um, a couple of years ago I won a contest to write the first part of a mystery novel. And now the question is, am I going to finish that? I see it as an interfaith novel in the sense that the title is Startled by the Magi. And, of course, the Magi or Magi, however you want to pronounce it, were actually Zoroastrian priests. And they were the ones who were present, the three wise men who were present at the birth of Christ. But very few people know that. So I'd love to weave that little bit of religious history into a mystery novel. We'll see if I can do it or not. Well, the premise sounds interesting. We'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) But right now, I also spend a good amount of time um, traveling and lecturing about Abraham, because it turns out so many different kinds of people are interested in Abraham, that I've been invited to churches and to book clubs and um, public libraries to speak about Abraham. So that's been an unexpected, nice sidelight of writing the book, is being so involved in giving lectures about it. What has surprised people about Abraham? Well, I think really the, ti- the title says it all, because most people don't know that Abraham had three wives. That comes as a big surprise. And most people don't realize that records were kept in so many families for so long that we actually can say, yes, the founders of five religions trace their ancestry to Abraham. Because although we all know sort of in the back of our minds that Indeed, almost everybody must be descended from Abraham. 
still, my family certainly didn't keep records for 4,000 years. So I think it's a nice surprise to people to find out that there's, there are families in the world that have thought about their ancestry for a very long time and handed it down from child to grandchild to great-great-grandchild so that eventually they would be able to look back and say, oh my goodness, we do, we trace right back to Abraham. People are aware of Isaac and Ishmael, Ishmael. right? Mm-hmm. And so those two branches, I think, are pretty well accepted to spawn uh, Moses and Jesus in that line, and then Ishmael spawned the, the line of Muhammad and the Bab and Baha'u'llah. Is that correct? Um, almost. Um, yeah, that's, that's the other surprising thing, is how is it that they all link up? Um, <laughs> and it's a bit of a trick. It took me a while to understand it, too. So as it turns out, yes, let's see, Judaism connects through Sarah, first wife of Abraham. Uh, Christianity also connects through Sarah. And then Islam, uh, Muhammad, connects through Hagar, who was the concubine or second wife, however you want to describe it, of Abraham. And then the Bab is descended from Muhammad, and so he also connects through Hagar. And then Baha'u'llah descends from two wives, but not from Hagar. So his descent is on the one hand from Sarah and on the other hand from Keturah. So that's where the third wife, Keturah, comes in, because Baha'u'llah is one of her descendants. There's this 4,000-year-old soap opera that we have about children and great-grandchildren and what they've been doing. God has made this incredible drama in our lives that, that lasts for thousands of years and keeps us riveted to our scriptures because we're always wondering what's next. Well, Francis, thank you so much for sharing about your writing and, and what you've been doing. Thank you. Well, it's just been a delight to talk with you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Francis Worthington, author of the book Baha'i Basics, A Guide to the Beliefs, Practices, and Histories of the Baha'i Faith and the book Abraham, One God, Three Wives, Five Religions. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
and he yearns every day to take his flight. My presence will be with you always. I have labored day and night. I must leave and take my flight, and no strength. Let the friends raise the call and carry the gift of love to the world. And the son of Bahar has winged his flight. Surely goodness and kindness 
Yeah. 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.